0: Good morning. I'm going to read this morning from John chapter 19. We're continuing on with this Only God series that we started just before Easter, and uh, we'll wrap that up next Sunday on Father's Day. I'm most particularly concerned with verses 28 through 30 because of the repetition of the phrase, uh, finished, uh, and it is finished, but I'd like to read this whole thing in context Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have his legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and as another Scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. It's been a couple of weeks since I've been with you and that I've prayed with you and I've been thinking of some of the things going on in our world. And so I'm going to ask that you would pray a prayer that's going to pop up behind me uh, with me today. Lord, our hearts are broken for people of color in Buffalo, for families of children in Texas, and over rape, destruction, and armed violence in Ukraine. Give us faith to hold on, encourage to work for the welfare of others, Give us leaders who will work together for solutions, not just for their parties. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have a question for you. What words have impacted you most greatly over life so far? Sue and I still laugh at a simple phrase from the days when we were not yet engaged, but were talking about getting married more than 40 years ago. I'd let her know that I was sure, but she wanted some time to think about it. And sometime later, she gave me a card that let me know her thoughts about this, hoping to see a look of acceptance on my face, and she looked at me with confusion when I burst out laughing. Instead of saying, I want to be with you, she had written in the card, I want to be you. So so every once in a while, we have this running joke in our family, and she'll send me a card that says, I want to be you. And it brings us back, and we continue to laugh at that moment. European author Mark Arnold wrote a column recently comparing several candidates for what he called the three greatest words ever spoken. And so he limited his collection to three words together. Perhaps you will debate these top six entries that he came up with, but let's look at them real quickly. The first was number six, uh, Veni Vidi Vici by Julius Caesar. They mean, I came, I saw, I conquered. Julius was the greatest Roman general and the first Roman emperor who uttered these words after leading a relatively easy victory in the Battle of Zella in 47 BC. They made this list because Caesar's three-word victory statement is still copied and used by people today in the sports world, in the political world, and in other places. Here's another three-word entry. Number five was Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité, the motto of the French Revolution calling for liberty, equality, and friendship. This phrase was coined by Robespierre in the midst of the chaos of the bloody 18th century French Revolution. These three words went on to become the heartbeat of the French Constitution. The fourth entry was, we the people. Where's that come from? Oh, okay, this this is the opening phrase of the preamble to the Constitution of the United States of America, written in 1787. They're important words for us today and for everyone who believes in democracy as the noblest form of government. And they were echoed in Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address when he spoke of government from the people, by the people, and for the people. The number three entry on his list was their finest hour. Do you know who said that? Sir Winston... Churchill. Yeah, you knew it. Churchill uttered these words in 1940 as he praised the costly sacrifices of the Royal Air Force in what became known as the Battle of Britain in repelling Nazi Germany's attempts to bombard Great Britain into submission from across the Channel. That victory gave time for the Allies to partner, plan, and train for the D-Day invasion that took place 78 years ago this past Monday. The number two entry on his list departed from historical references, three very simple, powerful words, I love you. And so departing from the historical, he recognized the the incredible power of those three words to change relationships, to, to change the way that we see other people. But number one on his list were these three words that we're going to focus on today. It is finished. The final three words spoken by Jesus on Calvary's cross before he finished his, his last breath and gave up his, his life to his, to his father. This morning, we're going to talk about these three most impactful words ever spoken that come from Jesus, it is finished. So as we continue this Only God series, our topic today is about the finished work of Jesus. That's a phrase that we sometimes use in the church. What does it mean and what does it refer to and how do we understand that? In this series, we've been looking at events that can only be explained or understood through the intervention of God into human affairs. So let me welcome you here this Sunday morning. I'm glad to be back with you after a couple of Sundays away. Sue and I took the anniversary trip that we'd hoped to take last year and got postponed to this year. Welcome to all of you who are here in our worship center today. It's good to see you again. I heard that Amy and Christy did a great job in my absence in in speaking the last two weeks. And uh, I'm thrilled whenever I hear that. I hope this morning that we can make all of you feel at home here. Let me also welcome everyone who is watching online. You're an important part of what we're doing. You're an important part of our church family, even though you're watching from home or from some other place this morning. Uh, We have a very dedicated tech team that not only allows uh, them to fill various roles on Sunday mornings, but they allow us to reach you online wherever you are and we're continually looking at ways to improve the way that we are connecting with you. Christy mentioned a few moments ago that if you are new to North River, whether you're online or whether you're here in the room, we would love for you to connect with us. What she said is going to appear just behind me right now. If you, if you text the word hello to this number, 781-227-8765, we'll let that linger there for a minute, or you can go to our, our website and, and Click the I'm new button. That will take you to a connection card. Or you can just walk out here if you're in the room to the the Welcome Center and fill out a connection card there. What will happen? You'll get an email from me, hopefully very quickly. You'll get a personal note. And if we can find you at home, you'll get a phone call from one of our staff members. We would simply like to begin the dialogue with you. Where are you at in your spiritual journey? What, What brought you to North River? How can we serve you? And we'd like to begin that conversation. The question for this morning is... What did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished? And why are those words considered to be among the most powerful words ever spoken? That's what we're going to focus on this morning. So we're talking about the finished work of Jesus. I'd first like to look at how this phrase was used in the old world. I said a moment ago, verses 28 through 30 are the ones that we're going to focus on this morning of John chapter 19. Here's what they say. John is writing. John's the fourth gospel writer. He says, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, he said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. There is an interesting term that is repeated twice in these three verses from John's gospel. In verse 28, John, as the narrator, tells us, knowing that everything had now been finished. And then we find in verse 30, Jesus' final words from the cross are, it is finished. John was the last of the four gospel writers to put his thoughts down on parchment, So John, as a gospel writer, is very selective. He knows that Matthew, Mark, and Luke covered very much the same material, in often cases using the exact same words. And so John uses some accounts and stories that the other gospels chose not to include or that they weren't there for while John was. And he thinks that these details are important for us. It becomes obvious to us as readers that John wants us to pay attention to this concept of things being finished. Now, when you read about this, Bible scholars and theologians get really excited when they encounter this phrase, it is finished. J.C. Ryle wrote, Of all the seven famous sayings of Christ on the cross, none is more remarkable. A.W. Pink said, Eternity will be needed to make manifest all that tetelestai, which is the Greek word for that phrase, contains. Charles Simeon, Wrote since the foundation of the world, there was never a single word uttered in which such diversified and important matter was contained. Every word, indeed, that proceeded from our Savior's lips deserves the most attentive consideration. But "tetelestai" eclipses all. So the word that we're looking at in the Greek New Testament is this phrase or this word "tetelestai," which gets translated as a phrase: "It is finished." Let's take a closer look so that we can see what got them so excited. We have a three-word English phrase in English to to, uh, translate this one Greek concept in the New Testament. Scholars have found that at least six different uses of that word were available in the way that the the word tetelestai, or it is finished, was used in the first century world. This is the work of Jonathan Kawornu and Patrick Yagiera in a doctoral study on just this one verse, John 19:30. First, it was used by artists. When a painter or a sculptor would finish a work of art and they would unveil it, they would stand back and admire the masterpiece and say, it is finished, as if to say, uh, after this long period of time, it's finally done, it's finally ready. The second use came from servants. When a servant had an assignment for his or her master in the old world, and that assignment had been, com- assignment had been completed, the servant would say, "Yes, master, I have finished the work." They used that same phrase to tellusai. Priests used that same work in the Jewish religious system when a priest was presented with an unblemished an acceptable sacrifice for the Lord, he would say, tetelestai, as if to say, this one doesn't need any more work. This one is ready to bring to the sacrifice. You may be more familiar with the usage from a merchant's or accountants. The term tetelestai meant paid in full in that usage. So when a debt or a bill was paid off, the accountant would write, tetelestai, paid in full. In our home, we encountered this. We recently paid off a a used car. And so it was a, a cause of joy in our household to receive the title for the car in the mail along with a letter that acknowledged that the loan had been paid in full. There were those words. If we were writing it in the ancient language, it would have said tetelestai across the bottom of that. Nothing more is owed. The account and the debt has been fully paid. In the military, they also used this term. When a soldier would rush into battle, he might cry, which was meant to strike fear into his enemy, thinking, you are finished, because we're on the march now. And then there was one more usage. In the realm of the prisons, when a Roman citizen was convicted of a crime and thrown into a prison, they would receive what was called a certificate of debt listing all of the crimes and that would be nailed to the cell door allowing everyone who passed by to know exactly why that person was in that cell. But when the prisoner had served that sentence and finished it, the judge would take that same indictment, sign it, and write across it the words, tetelestai, it is finished, meaning that person was free to be released and those charges could never ever be brought against that prisoner again because that certificate released them from all further penalty. Now, these six different uses of this phrase raise all kinds of questions for us. One of those is, what mission did Jesus finish? What was paid in full? And did Jesus understand all of this? So let's look at those questions. The first is, what mission did Jesus finish? In verse 30, it says, When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So Jesus is making a declaration. He's using that term at that moment as the servant, saying he has finished his mission, but yet there's more. The Bible drops hints about the mission of Jesus all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Just after the first rebellion against God by Adam and Eve is recorded, we find the first clue about God's plan to redeem the lives of human beings from the ravages of sin. This shows up in Genesis 3.15. The evil one, God's enemy, has deceived Eve and then Adam through half-truths and lies. Remember, the the Bible calls the devil the father of all lies. And at that point, God makes an announcement both to Eve and also to the devil one. By the way, if you have a hard time with us talking about the devil or the evil one, get over it. The Bible presents him very, very early, and it's part of the reality of the world we live in. There is ultimate good. There is God. There is also an enemy of God who just tries, to de- tries to destroy everything that's there. And if we don't accept that, we live without some of the realization of why things are so difficult in this world and without the hope of the final victory that God is going to bring over evil. Here's the, the, the declaration that God made. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now notice something about that verse. God says to the evil one, I put enmity between you and the woman. Okay, we get that pretty easily. The second line says between your offspring and hers. That word offspring in the English language as well as in the Hebrew language can be singular or plural depending on the context. So we're wondering, uh, is he talking about offspring in general between all of the people of God? There's warfare with this enemy. That is perhaps true and probably is true. But then it changes gear with the third line and it moves to a singular representation with a singular pronoun. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. This is the first veiled reference to God's plan of redemption where one particular person who would come from the line of Adam and Eve would crush the head of the evil one. This is a reference to what happened on the cross when Jesus died for our sins and broke the power of evil once and for all, but that he would also be struck in the process. And so the children of Adam and Eve began wondering as they had children, which child is it? who will rise up from the midst of us, who will conquer the power of evil. And it would take a long, long time before God's plan was ready. Isaiah would go on to reveal that this same child would be called the suffering servant. Micah 5.2 revealed that the Messiah would be born in the town of Bethlehem. Psalm 22 pictured the kind of death that he would die in great detail. And one of those details was that he would have tremendous thirst. His mouth would be dried up like a potsherd. it says in Psalm 22 written by David, a 1,000 years before the time of Jesus, it powerfully pictures the kind of death Jesus would die. Isaiah 53 declared that he would be led like a lamb to the slaughter, and there are many other prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, too many to explore right now. So it becomes interesting that this phrase, it is finished, appears in John's gospel, because John is telling us that Jesus had completed all these things that were part of his mission, John's Gospel has been criticized by skeptical scholars for its simplicity of language. And it uses far fewer words than the other Gospels. Is that a big deal to you? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that it is to me too. But I think they missed something. Because at closer look, it appears that John was a master of repetition. While he didn't use as many words or as difficult Greek language as the other Gospels, he seems to use repetition often in order to make his point some say, some of these same scholars tracked these frequently repeated words in the gospel of john the name father appears 137 times the verb to send appears 60 times the concept of the world 78 times in john's gospel the verb love or the noun love appears some 57 times The word believe appears 98 times in the Gospel of John. Seems rather important. And the word eternal life, or the concept of eternal life, shows up 23 times in John's Gospel. Put together, if you just take those words and kind of work out a sentence with them, here's what John seems to be telling us through his use of repetition. In love, God the Father sent his Son into this broken world so that those who believe in Jesus may have eternal life. You know what that is? It's a summary of the gospel. It's a shorter way of repeating John three sixteen, which seems to encapsulate the entire gospel. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is the message that John was trying to convey, and he did it artfully and beautifully and through repetition. This is the, mi- the mission that Jesus came to fulfill. He was serving the task of his Father that his Father had given him to redeem sin-sick people and to give them a whole new spiritual life by taking on himself the full penalty of our sin, thereby crushing the power and the hold of the evil one. So his death on the cross marked the end of Jesus' suffering. It is finished. His death on the cross declared that the debt had been paid in full. It is finished. His death on the cross meant that no further charge can be brought against those who trust in him it is finished. His death on the cross celebrated that the masterpiece of God's plan had now been unveiled. It is finished. His death on the cross was only celebrated with a few quiet words, but it was at the same time the victory shout of a warrior who had just told the evil one that he was finished too three short words in our English language, but they mean so much. They declare with power so much about what Jesus was doing. Here's the next question. Did Jesus know on that day what he was saying? Did he know that, that we would unpack those three words with such volume of meaning? Let me go back to verse 28 and verse 30. Verse 28, he says, Later, knowing that everything... Had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled. Verse 30, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So, John tells us in verse 28 that Jesus knew that everything had been finished. Everything that he'd been assigned to do had been completed. This is saying Jesus knew exactly what was happening, that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and he knew exactly why he was there. He was fully conscious right to the end. He was also fully conscious that Scripture might be fulfilled. Psalm 22 begins with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Theologians through the years have made much of this phrase, saying that Jesus was identifying with the suffering of the world. I have no problem with that, but Jesus was doing more than that. He was quoting a psalm that many people came to understand as a messianic psalm and would have memorized and taken to heart. So what he was doing was beginning a chant that would have been completed by the people who were standing beneath him at the foot of the cross. When he started off with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are others who would instinctively have quoted the rest of Psalm 22. It talks about how his bones are out of joint. They pierced my hands and my side. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. There are enemies who are out here shouting insults at me. All the things that they were exactly that they were seeing on that particular day were fulfillment of what had been written a thousand years earlier. And they cast lots for his clothing, which David also wrote about in that same psalm. That meant that Jesus was hanging on the cross naked. Now think about this for a minute. All of the artwork that we've come up with from the Middle Ages on, they put at least some kind of clothing on Jesus so that, you know, we're hopefully handling all this with a little bit more appropriateness. But if we're being literal, Jesus was hanging on the cross, exposed to the world, humiliated, absolutely naked. In her book, The Hiding Place, Corrie Ten Boom, who was a Dutch woman sent to the, the Nazi concentration camps for hiding Jews in their home in Holland, wrote about how the Nazi guards at Ravensbrück would make all the women at that concentration camp march past them completely naked every single Friday. It was done only for the purpose of humiliating them. On one particular day as they were marching this way, Corrie realized that the guards had taken Jesus' clothes on a Friday that we call... Good Friday. And that that meant that Jesus was hanging there naked as well. Her sister was marching in line in front of her and she was noticing how her sister's bones were beginning to to stand out because she was starving to death. And she leaned over and she said, Corey, he was naked on Friday too. And her sister Corey instantly turned around and said, uh, or uh, Betsy was her name. I'm sorry, I said it wrong. Betsy, uh, they, they took his clothes too. And Betsy turned around and said, Oh, Corey, I never thanked him for that. Imagine that, that even his nakedness gets used to encourage others who share in the sufferings of Jesus. All right, why does all of this matter? This reveals Jesus' focus on his mission right to his very last breath. Jesus was fully conscious of of fulfilling scripture to the end. He saw the mission through until he had done all that was part of his assignment. And then he breathed his last and gave up his spirit. But in doing so, he spoke the words of a humble servant who is on assignment from God the Father. And it was as if he was lifting his head to say, I have finished all that you sent me here to do. It is finished, to Telestai. To God, it means I've completed the assignment, all that you gave me to do. To us, it was a declaration. I've paid your penalty in full. The debt has been canceled. You are free to go. No charge can ever be brought against you forevermore because of these three powerful words from the one and only person who was able to take our sins to the cross and once and for all deal with them so thoroughly. He started his ministry by proclaiming that the prophecy of Isaiah 61 about the coming of the Messiah and the year of Jubilee had been fulfilled in their hearing and he ended his ministry with his final words that it is finished meaning everything that he'd been assigned to do had been fulfilled in the hearing of those who were standing at the foot of the cross. Here's the big idea this morning. Jesus so completely finished his saving work that there is nothing we can add but our faith. This is one of the reasons why we never ever need to work for our salvation because Jesus declared, it is finished, it is paid in full. You never need to earn your salvation. You never need to be good enough for God, as if we could anyway. All the good things that we do are part of living up to The declaration that he pronounces over us that we are innocent and righteous in his sight by virtue of the righteousness of Christ being placed on us when we respond to Jesus with our faith. The one thing that God asks is that we trust in Jesus, his Savior. If you haven't yet, this would be a good moment to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It takes a consciousness of thought. It takes a humility of spirit to say, I realize fully and freely that I can get out of the religion business in that I don't have to keep doing so many good things in order to outweigh the bad because that's not what our salvation is about. It's not about us trying to prove ourselves to God. It's about God giving us something we don't deserve that we have to humble ourselves to receive. Faith is the one thing that we can contribute that isn't of our own effort. Faith is simply saying, I recognize the truth. I submit to it. Have you done that? If you haven't, maybe you can do that with me right now. It'll sound something like this. Dear God, I recognize that when Jesus said, it is finished, he paid for my sins. And so I will trust in Jesus and what he's done. And I will rest in what he's done and follow him. Give me this new life that you promise right now. Okay, there's another question here, though. The question is, when Jesus said those words, it is finished, does it mean that there's nothing left for Jesus to do? Is Jesus just sitting up there bored on the throne of God? I don't think so. What is left for Jesus to do? First of all, nothing in terms of our salvation from our sins he's accomplished all that but there is more that jesus is doing now and will do yet for instance he serves now as our advocate before the father so when the accuser the evil one that we talked about earlier comes and he says to god look at this person the way that they messed up here's one of your children they claim they believe in you and look at the way they just fell on their faces morally or whatever else jesus is our advocate and says father remember that certificate of debt that you signed On the day that this person put his or her faith in me, I'm representing that I've already paid for those sins. They can never be charged again. He's our advocate before the Father, even now. Second, he prays for his people. One of the reasons that we pray is to match the prayers of Jesus, but even on the days when you and I are least faithful, he is praying for us. He's praying for us that the power of God would be released in our lives. He's praying for us that we fulfill the mission that we were created for, that we would use the gifts that he has given us, that we would serve well and that we would have an impact in this world. Third, he's preparing a place for us. He wrote about this in John's Gospel as well, that when we finally see him and when we are united with him in the kingdom of heaven, there will be a place for us. I don't know exactly what that will be like, and you don't know exactly what, the, what that will be like. In the old King James Bible that we used when I was a kid, it spoke of it as being a mansion, that his father's house has many mansions. That's, that's something of a mind-blower. How does a house have mansions? I think it's meant to expand our thinking that you won't just have a cot in the corner somewhere. There will be a special place for you. The newer translations say that my father's house has many rooms. There'll be a room for you in the Father's house. Fourth, he will return to put an end to evil and death. One of the things that we hope for is that one day Jesus will come and he will restore this earth to its original splendor. Heaven will come down to earth. God would dwell in the midst of his people and the earth is going to be restored more beautiful than ever before. That's That's a neat thought. For any of you who are absolute tree-huggers, guess what? God's going to complete that work one day. He is far better than our plans ever can. And you're not totally off base in wanting to preserve the world in its beauty as it is. But he's going to do a far better job than we will. And then one last thing that he's doing. He is coming again, and he will gather those who believe in him and who trust him. We need to hold on to that thought. Jesus is going to return. It wasn't all over when he said it's finished. The mission of his saving work was over. But Jesus is still at work on your behalf. And he is working on your behalf until the day when he returns. And when he does, it'll all begin to come together and make sense for us like never before. We will see him in his glory and we will share that glory. And this is one of the great hopes that we hold on to. Jesus so completely finished his saving work, there there is nothing that we can add but our faith. And we really need to add our faith. Let's pray for a moment. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for coming into this very broken world of ours. Thank you for completing your mission to rescue and save people like me, people like all of us. Just as you served with your final breath, we promise we will trust you. And we will follow you until the day of our final breath as well. Keep that hope alive in each of us. Help us to be people who work for the good of all who are around us and who dare to live out the love that you have shown us. That we might influence many others around us with the same kind of hope in the midst of the brokenness of this world. That there is a God who ultimately will declare victory over all of this. Thank you for allowing us to come and gather today and to worship you and to praise you and to see the work that you're doing in each other. It is beautiful, Lord, when we see the transformation begin to take place in our hearts, in our minds, little by little, day by day. And so we ask that you will carry on and complete the work that you have started in each of us and be faithful to that work. Father, give us the wisdom that we need for this week. Give us the strength that we need to go out into this world we pray that you will also draw near to each of us and that your presence will give us the hope that we need to trust that we are yours and that others can be too. In Jesus' name, Amen.